the cat speaks. <laughs> Happening now, we'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 178 for May the 20th, 2020. My name is Wes Fryer, coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I am the Technology Integration and Innovation Specialist at Cassidy School, also teaching fifth and sixth grade media literacy and digital literacy, taught my last class of the trimester and our time of emergency remote learning. And that feels good. Um, and we are gonna actually, I think, have a face-to-face -face graduation in mid-June, but we'll be socially distancing and uh, having a different graduation, but still having you know some folks gather on campus. So joining me as always from deep in the Pacific Ocean, Dr. Neifler. <laughs> Good evening, Wes. I almost started singing Under the Sea there for just a second. Hey. Hello, sir. Great to see you. Uh, my name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school who's uh, housed, but maybe not necessarily located at the uh, Phyllis J. Washington College of Education and Human Sciences on the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And I, I work, I'm a 12 month employee, so there's no end of school for me. It will continue to go on and on and on and on in perpetuity, but, uh, we have a lot of programs that are ending in the next couple of weeks. And so it's exciting to see kids get wrapped up. And I think we are doing a pretty good job weathering storm that is COVID and, now, uh, my job turns interesting in the next three to 24 months as we look at opportunities to expand and serve new students and maybe get an increase in enrollment. And there are interesting new pots of money available to support things like distance learning um, in light of the COVID-19 situation. But uh, enough about me. Wes, what is the EdTech Situation Room? Well, we are a weekly podcast on Wednesday nights where Jason and I gather to talk about the past week's well, technology news through an educational lens. And we have all of our show notes available for you on our website, which is edtechsr.com slash links. And we are going to dive into some, uh, some topics. So uh, what, what topics do we have tonight, Alex, that we can draw from? Well, uh, tonight we may talk about, well, COVID-19 is probably not a real shock. We've got articles on privacy and security, social media, uh, podcasting, media literacy, conspiracy theories, Microsoft, Google, Apple, some good advice on video conferencing meetings, some things about connectivity, and of course, for sure, we will certainly share our geeks of the week, some geeky things we ran into over the past seven days. So, Wes, where would you like us to start tonight? Well, uh, let's actually start with a Starlink article. So, uh, as, as folks may know, um, I'm a fan of Elon Musk. I, uh, would definitely love to, to, uh, you know, purchase a Tesla someday. I think he's doing great, <clears throat> great work disrupting some, uh, significant industries like the automotive industry. Uh, but in addition to, you know, what he's doing with Tesla, uh, he has, he has SpaceX and uh, SpaceX is promising. And these are, these are tied together because I think this is due, this is related to the fact that Tesla's need uh, high speed, you know, internet connectivity to update, but um, he's, he's building something called Starlink. And I should, I put this under the, the connectivity at home title um, because the, the title of this, this is Ars Technica on May 20th is that Ajit Pai doubts um, Elon Musk's, SpaceX broadband latency claims. 
And so there is a large pot of money, I think to the tune of something like $16 billion that is about to be auctioned off by the FCC. And um, the chairman of the FCC is basically saying, Hey Musk, I think you're lying. Uh, traditional, you know, satellite uh, internet is, is latent. It has latency of like, they say 550. Um, wow. no, the altitude is 550 kilometers. The, the latency claim is 600 milliseconds. Musk is saying they're going to get with Starlink below 20 milliseconds. And that would allow someone to play a fast response video game at a competitive level. And so it seems unfortunate because, you know, if Musk and SpaceX can't qualify for this, then, you know, that, that this, this is not going to be able to benefit their rollout. But some people think that, you know, SpaceX may be poised to become the world's largest ISP. Um, and I am glad to see the FCC moving to try and provide more connectivity options for rural America, like, you know, Montana, USA. So, Jason, any thoughts about this? And do you, are you putting your your uh, life investment and all your retirement right now into SpaceX because you believe that <laughs> I cannot say that that is my retirement investment strategy. Of course, I'm extremely interested in the results of this project, in part because it's exactly as you say, Wes, uh, rural Montana needs more Internet provider options that where there is a, a provider is oftentimes just one. And uh, even cell coverage can't really make up a second potential option uh, because there are a limited number of towers and Montana is a vast geographical area. And as we've talked about many times in the past in the podcast, you go to areas of rural Montana. I'm not talking about, you know, Bozeman, Montana, uh, a population in, in the entire valley, 120,000. I'm talking about very rural Montana in northeastern Montana, which is extremely remote. And it's actually quicker to fly to North Dakota and drive to eastern Montana than it is to drive to eastern Montana from western Montana. And having been there to visit schools that participate in our program, one of the things I know is that sometimes internet can be pretty decent in town, school, for example, and but you get a mile outside of city limits and DSL and cable is not an option anymore. And then you get a half mile off the road and there are no cell tower coverages unless you stand on your tippy toes on top of a hill that's third from the right from your, your house. And so uh, it's a real issue and it's a massive divide. And in 2020, we shouldn't be talking about uh, uh, internet gaps, and yet they are extraordinary and massive. And so for me, um, something like satellite-based internet, if we can make that more prolific and then ultimately drive down the cost, it could be a real issue. But I know people whose satellite internet is either a backup internet for them or their primary internet provider, and the latency issue is extraordinary. Um, you mentioned uh, 600 milliseconds as a latency, and uh, that is roughly a medium cell phone coverage. Like if you're trying to play a game on a cell phone, uh, what I'm talking about is if you're trying to play, let's like, say, a, th- a third, uh, uh, a first-person shooter game or a, a cooperative game on Steam, and you are using your cell phone as a hotspot, that is not going to be very competitive for you at you know. 300, 400, 500, 600, 700 milliseconds of latency. I can't even begin to fathom what 20 milliseconds looks like. And in fact, that latency beats a lot of decent DSL coverage uh, in, in some neighborhoods. And so I can't imagine that that's true. And so I'll hope for the best and think that that's a real option. But it seems like some incredible technological hurdles would need to be uh, 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 settled before you can ultimately do that. But 
I'm all for more options for internet because as we've talked about several times in the past, rural Montana, rural America needs those options. Absolutely. All right. Where to next? Well, one other uh, connectivity related article uh, that and because I ran into this today, um, I, I read this article after I had the issue, but my Internet went down this morning. It's the first time I've had even the littlest iota of Internet issues since the whole COVID-19 started and I began sheltering in place the second week of March. But um, we have stable Internet. Uh, we are uh, Charter Spectrum customers and have been very happy with our Internet. It's 110 down, 10 up, and my wife and I both work at home. We do have technology independent jobs. We have to be able to get on our laptops, and we both have a variety of calls all day. And Today was the first day since this started in March that we've had any problems at all with Internet. But it went down about 830 this morning. Um, I... And I'm not sure if I'm bragging or embarrassed by the fact that I actually have three alternatives in case my Internet goes down between the various uh, hotspot uh, access and cell uh, uh, coverage that I have. But it was pretty slow today and uh, it wasn't as fast as I hoped it would be. My cell coverage is pretty good in my neighborhood, but as a T-Mobile customer, um, it's not super great in part because there are a lot more users on T-Mobile than there were a year or two ago when this started. But after that at noon today, what I had to ultimately do was unplug my cable modem for, I left it unplugged for 20 minutes. I plugged it back in. I restarted my routers and then the speed was only about 70%, but it was back up again. But my guess is, is that a lot of folks that maybe aren't as, as tech savvy have run into issues with their speed. In fact, um, a, a good example of this last week, my boss, uh, the executive director of, of the Digital Academy, was getting three down and two up in the same uh, spectrum charter. And uh, uh, my coworker, Mike, and I were working with him to troubleshoot all the things. And he ended up having to unplug, plug it back in, and it went back up to 110 down and 10 up. But there's a great New York Times article. It's weird where this stuff pops up, right? Uh, there's a New York Times article from today that talks about what happens if your Internet becomes slower. And it goes through all the things you might need to do in order to speed that back up, including a lot of people are running dated router hardware at home. Uh, Wes and I have both talked about how that can be a real security risk. But the other issue is that Wi-Fi technology has marched ahead fairly dramatically uh, in the last 10 years. And if your router is more than two or three years old, you might not be utilizing the best technology to serve up Wi-Fi in your home. So I just thought I'd share that article. Great tips. Uh, you may be savvy enough to know a lot of this stuff, but this is something you could share with friends and family if they're having slow internet issues. That is super fantastic. Uh, I'm, uh, I want to make a comment. Well, shout out to folks who are, who are watching us online. Uh, I just actually shared on Facebook. I, I usually do that because we, it automatically posts out to, uh, our Facebook page. Um, and anyway, it was doing an automatic transcription on Facebook. So I was, of course, seeing, speaking of latency, but I was, I was seeing you talk and I was seeing your words right underneath as an automatic transcription, which again says, Hey folks, the things that we're saying on YouTube are going to be, are, are already becoming part of our permanent record. We talk about digital footprint and the kinds of things that, you know, um, we, uh, you know, post online and social media, you know, blogging is not as big as it, as it certainly was in the mid 2000s. But, um, 
you know, in terms of podcast discovery, video discovery, companies like Google are working really hard to try to improve those things. And one of the, the things, one of the ways that that's going to manifest itself and already is, is that the words that we say are being transcribed and then those transcriptions are being put into search engines. Hopefully that's going to mean that if you have found this podcast and you're interested in educational technology and news and, uh, you, you like hanging out with, with geeks who, who talk about this stuff, you know, you found us, but it's anyway, kind of interesting. Um, I'm going to drop a link that's related. I wrote a blog post, I think maybe last week. I've kind of been blogging maybe once a week for a while. Uh, but this one I titled, My Video Conference is Not Working. What Can I Do? Uh, because in addition to helping teachers at our school, um, I've been doing a little bit of help uh, and, and a little bit of evening training with folks at our church because our church, you know, like every other social organization, uh, has had to close doors and find ways to meet virtually. And so I got a, an email from someone about a week ago, it was very generic in terms of, hey, I just, we, Zoom's not working, or, you know, there's this person that isn't having a very good luck, you know, with their audio and video with our, with our, our call. Can you help them? And so I'm, I'm eager to check out that New York Times article. I'm going to share it as well. I definitely recommend it in my blog post. Just what Jason said, you got to upgrade your, upgrade your stuff, right? I think that we need to change some of our thinking when it comes to, to this. I mean, right now in this time of remote learning, and I think that we are going to be facing some kind of hybrid, uh, learning situation in the fall. Um, from where I sit and where we sit in Oklahoma, I mean, no one knows. We've got a lot of people that want to open up not only the economy, but schools. Uh, we're planning to start offering with social distancing face-to-face summer school starting on June 15th. Uh, I am personally going to be teaching two virtual Minecraft uh, camps, which I'm really excited about. And I got uh, the green light on those um, actually today. But, um, you know, remote learning and connectivity is essential. This is absolutely like electricity and water and what you know your your gas whatever you use on a daily basis to live internet is that kind of of a resource now so i think these are great resources to share with people and we need to continue to equip others to understand some basic troubleshooting you know how is it that this connection works and while what you're saying you know turning off your modem and resetting and that kind of stuff may help People need to be testing their speeds. And I, I didn't put this in the blog post, but I tweeted about it this last weekend, I think. Uh, I love my Google Wi-Fi. Now it's called Google Nest. And one of the things it does on a daily basis is it tests my connectivity. And I simply look at my phone and go, oh, wow, look at the speed which I am getting. And so you need to take a look at that, see if you're getting the speed that you're paying for, both down and up. And then you need to take a look at what your end devices are doing. And until we put our our backhaul Ethernet, which is a wired cable, it's going to you know go from where our uh, our coaxial uh, internet provider uh, cable company line comes in to this back room. I don't think we're actually taking full advantage of this speed bump, um, but we are able over Wi-Fi to get somewhere between three and 400 down on, on very new devices. Um, that is about the upper limit of 802 AC, uh, depending on how many walls and things like that that you have, that's, that's going to, that's going to impact. But I, I think, and I, I need to write a blog post about this. We need to move, uh, from emergency remote learning, which is a shout out to Ashley Reed at the Oak Ridge School, who said that a couple weeks ago, to hybrid blended learning, whatever this is going to look like. And it's still going to be challenging and it's still going to be hard 
In fact, in some cases, I think it might be even harder because we're going to have a split in, in certain case, cases of kids that are at home uh, because people in their family are sick or they're sick or they're having to quarantine. Or maybe their parents don't want them to come to school, you know, with kids that are at, at, in, in face to face. And so it's going to be very challenging. But to, this is the time, right? We got summer. And so think about if you can put aside some money to in, to upgrade your Internet and you're probably going to need to spend if you have. I mean, at least a hundred dollars, but you may need to spend somewhere around two fifty to, to get a, several different access points. Getting two or three access points, either um, what is it, Orbi, or what's the what's the one that Amazon bought? Um, I think it was, yeah. Something like Warby, but I mean, there, there's, there's a couple. You want to look for mesh and look for, ne- you know, next, latest generation Wi-Fi and it'll make a big difference. Right. And, you know, note that, you know, do some research on this. And then even if you're not like network nerdy, right? You're listening to our podcast because you like the, the notion of ed tech, but maybe you aren't a networking wizard. Uh, that's fine. And there are great resources. The one I recommend always is Wirecutter, uh, which is a New York Times property that goes through and every couple of months takes all the new products and tries to make the best recommendations about things like Wi-Fi routers. One thing to note, and I think we've talked about this in the past, uh, I was working with a, a good friend the other day, and she was looking for a second webcam because uh, she wanted one for home and one for work and was expecting to, to, to maybe go back to work a little bit. She works in an office that, uh, or she largely works alone, but um, wanted a recommendation. And I have a couple of Logitech models that I typically recommend to friends and family, and they're not available right now because the webcams, I'm not just talking about good webcams, I'm talking about webcams have largely gone out of stock across the universe. And I do think that if COVID ends up having people work at home more in the coming months, some things will become more expensive um, as people maybe upgrade to do exactly what, what, what Wes is suggesting, which is to take a look at your setup and maybe make some changes. And so if you're in the financial position to do so right now, or you've been conserving a stimulus check uh, for a rainy day, uh, but want to make sure that, you know, you have uh, what you need to to stay consistently at home or you have many users, you and a spouse and, and many kids or other family members are in your home using the same Wi-Fi router. It's a good time to upgrade. And my guess is, is as people do that, some of that stuff is going to get more expensive down the road. So something to keep in mind uh, as a consumer during this time. Absolutely. Uh, let's do a quick Apple one. Uh, this is nine to five Mac, May 15th or no, May 14th. Um, this is a rumor. All right. So we sometimes hit these and, uh, this is talking about Apple glasses and other things. Um, but it's, it starts reliable. Apple analyst Ming Chi Ku has shared a new investor note today focused on the new iPad hardware as well as Apple glasses. And I'm most interested in the Apple glasses. And he's saying, uh, in 2022 at the earliest. <laughs> So this basically says, you know, it's going to come in a few years. Um, but that technology, um, you know, it's, it's definitely one of these things that's bleeding edge. We're not there yet. But Apple, you know, we, we, we did not see, I think, with Google Glasses, the uh, the product that that many people hoped we would have, which was, oh, my gosh, look, now I can have augmented as well as virtual reality experiences wherever. And it's just going to be fantastic. Um, I mean, I I had a chance to borrow some uh, from my friend Felix Giacomino for a number of weeks. It's very underwhelming. Um, maybe that was also because I was wearing glasses. But I mean, it just it just wasn't amazing. 
Uh, certainly there were Google videos that made it look amazing. I know there was a tour one time of the, uh, the CERN particles accelerator that some teacher got to do and he wore the glasses and his kids saw this high definition tour as he walked around. Anyway, that looked really cool. But anyway, uh, I am very interested in Apple doing that. Um, but you know, that's, that's off, off in the, in the distant horizon. So my question to you, Dr. Neifer, where do you stand on your Apple Watch lust? Has there been any movement at all in that platform world? Uh, I, the, you're, 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 you're asking me to do something to get that I don't have the mental bandwidth for. I really, here's the deal. I, I, so I read an article last week talking about how the base MacBook Air is the best base uh, laptop that Apple has ever released, which tempts me. I mean, I have access at work to, uh, it's a five or six year old, uh, uh, MacBook Air that I could use full time if I wanted to. It's currently a kind of a backup computer we have sitting in a closet. And that's oh, kind record, of, for the record, how many computers do you have access to? Both, both uh, Oh, I, way more than, way more than, than I want to admit in public. Maybe after the show, I'll tell you, but it's, 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 it's clearly north of 20. But the point being of our conversation, like I could adopt that. And then I have, uh, um, I have an older, uh, iPad mini and I could, uh, buy the, the iPhone SE, which looks like an exceptional value for what you get for it. And then buy a watch and be in the Apple ecosystem. But like I, it's weird because even though I'm Chromebook guy, right? That's kind of how I'm starting to identify myself. I have not used a Chromebook, uh, other than, uh, briefly using it when I'm not working in my office in, in the last eight weeks. I have a windows machine at home. It's a, five-year-old a gamer desktop that was actually over-specced for when I bought it. So right now it's perfect for running Windows 10. But you should, funny you should mention the watch because I think I mentioned this uh, when I bought this. But around Christmas time, um, there was a, a really great deal on Amazon for – this is the um, Fossil Explorist 4. This was a return – uh, to Amazon. It was like a third of the price. I got it for like $79 or something, but I didn't like it that much. The screen is beautiful. The form factor is nice, but it felt sluggish and the battery life was terrible. Well, earlier this week I had um, plugged it back in and I'm not even really sure why. And I reset it because I, I, I switched to a different phone a couple weeks ago and sure enough, an update came over and um, this is now uh, uh, way better on battery and way better um, on uh, it's like it's not sluggish anymore. Like it's it's really quite dramatically different. So I, I'm, I'm happy in the watch space I'm in right now. But, you know, I it, no doubt to me, uh, the Apple ecosystem is much more complete, in my humble opinion, if you want the expansive devices, right? Like it's a little different when you start comparing one to one. But the Apple Apple ecosystem is a little more complete, in my humble opinion, than any of the alternatives, including Microsoft and, and Google. Well, two thoughts I'll, I'll share. Uh, we did upgrade, as I think I mentioned last week, both our middle daughter and middle child and um, my wife, who are on the iPhone 6S. They, they went to the SE. Um, really hasn't been that dramatic, except the battery. Huge, huge improvement on the battery life and then just a faster processor. Uh, but, you know, at $400, although I think we paid $450 because we did the 128 gig versus 64, it's it, it was a great investment. And then the other thing I'd say is in this time of remote learning, it has been a wonderful thing 
number one, that all of our teachers have laptops, right? And that is not the case. I heard a story today uh, of a school where the teachers literally are bringing their desktops back to school now because they didn't have laptops. And in order to do remote learning, they, they had to bring their desktop computers, um, you know, from, from work or from school to home. Um, but it's been also, it's been great that all of our teachers have had MacBook Airs. There's a couple of Windows, you know, PCs floating around out there. Um, but, you know, at one time, I had entertained the thought, and I think anybody who's been a technology director anytime recently has thought about this, you know, could uh, Chromebooks, you know, meet our needs? And what we found is that we've just got a lot of diverse needs, the video conference requirements, not, you know, Google Hangout Meets does does really well in, in the browser, uh, but we've ended up using GoToMeeting quite a bit. Um, and so you need to, you know, the video processor is important. Um, I've, I'm fortunate and thankful to, to have a MacBook Pro. Um, I've been doing a lot of video editing in the last two days because I've, uh, you know, helped record some, some uh, go to webinar video conferences. We've done, you know, end of year celebrations. Uh, processor power has been really important. So I think all of these, and then return on investment. How long are you going to be keeping that device, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it's uh, it's important for us as school leaders to the degree that we can to think about, you know, and we're, I don't know about Montana, but it, we feel like, I, I feel like we're just, we're, we've, we're surviving, you know, to this point where, where school is over and now we're going to catch our breath, you know, and so how are we going to make the fall a better experience? And, and a big part of that needs to be the, the, the device that you, you carry on a daily basis. And yeah. so, a powerful device that is going to be able to meet your needs. We've got a number of teachers plugging iPads in and using their iPad as a tablet that they can then teach live with, with a whiteboard, uh, being able to do that. That that has been a game changer for many of our high school and middle school math teachers and, and, a, and an elementary, our fourth grade uh, elementary, elementary math teacher too. So anyway, it's... Uh, Important to consider all these things. And to your point, Jason, about availability, hey, if you're going to order stuff, put your order in now and hope that the supplies are going to be there. Because we've had in the show, I, Google a couple weeks ago was having trouble. Um, yes. Our son is, uh, if, if his high, if his high school, if it's college transcript is electronically transmitted to his Houston, um, office where his, where he's going to be, uh, off, officing remotely out of, if they get it by end of business tomorrow, he will start work as an official engineer on Tuesday. Um, but he hasn't gotten his, his laptop yet. So it's, it's going to be interesting, you know, to see what they send him and, and how that works because supply chains are affected and right. you, you may want to order a bunch of new, you know, device X's, but they may or may not be available to ship to you uh, by the time school starts. Right. Well, it's never been more important. Uh, actually, two quick comments. It's never been more important than now to think about if you are going to end up spending eight, ten hours a day on a computer, thinking about everything from your workspace to your keyboard, whether you want, want to plug into a docking station. I mean, I, I have a, a great privilege and luxury that I have a, a spare bedroom I can dedicate to an office and I'm working on a desk. And I mentioned, I think it was last week or the week before, that I have, got, I have a beautiful uh, workbench table from Home Depot that serves a beautiful Beautiful standing desk. I'm going to get a side workbench so that it can be an L shape. Um, I, I, you know, I'm lucky to be able to be in the financial and then space position to do that. But even if you don't have those opportunities, figuring out where to work and if you need to get a riser for your laptop and, a, and an external keyboard, mouse, or whatever that needs to look like, it is a good thing to think about. And 
The thing you mentioned about starting to think about uh, beyond the now, I know a lot of teachers and principals and administrators where they're getting kind of stuck in the muck when it comes to some of the last things of the school year. I know that graduation is weighed very heavily on a lot of school administrators. I've talked to people that have literally been on their cell phone in a gym with a yardstick and some duct tape trying to figure out what does six feet of social distancing look like in a graduation in a small town gymnasium. Um, that will be done soon, but then the focus has to be how can we flexibly get ready for the fall, which could be all the way open, all the way closed, or somewhere in between. And those those conversations really need to start now. And um, as someone that, frankly, wasted uh, my summer uh, summers off, I didn't really appreciate having summers off uh, when I had them off until I lost them when I became a 12-month employee. Now, frankly, I'd give just about anything for three months off in the summertime to reboot my, my mind and soul. Um, you know, I'm not saying work every day, but spending some time pretty regularly about thinking about this, taking notes, you know, grabbing a notebook. Um, I will tell you one of my strategies has been I'm a notebook guy. I always have been. I like writing things down on paper. Um, if you could see my background in my office, which you can't, but I literally have uh, organized totes full of blank notebooks, which I like to collect uh, because I love a good notebook. But this has been my idea notebook where every time I think to myself, now is not the time to think about this. But when all this mess is over with, what do I want to think about? What do I want to advocate for? You know, and there's literally uh, uh, probably 50 pages in here of ideas and drawings um, that, that you should be doing the same and, you know, utilize this this extraordinary opportunity to reboot the summer to be thinking about how this might look differently for you next year. It may not be as emergency next year. It may not be as, you know, overnight adaptation. So what is it you can do? What is it you can think about about your mind and practice to do that? And I'm sorry that I cannot remember who it was earlier uh, I did read a tweet tonight from someone who was in my 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 social media group that was, was been talking to teachers about what they'll do differently next year, uh, even if they go back face to face full time. They had lots of great, interesting ideas. Um, there was the one thing he said that really touched my heart was that they will not um, they will not waste the time they have with kids face to face. They will cherish the opportunity to be in a face to face classroom. I love that and. Uh, I, for someone that loved teaching and being in a classroom and working with kids in a face-to-face environment, my heart goes out to teachers who have not seen their students face-to-face in three months. But the summer is a great opportunity to think about how you can maybe do things differently next year. Absolutely. Hey, you want to hit the uh, privacy articles? I think you've kind of carried those forward, haven't you, for a week or two? Do, do we I have. For those? Why don't we go yeah. to that? So uh, a couple of different uh, pieces here. First, uh, maybe a broad one that uh, The Verge uh, reported on April 30. And there's been a lot about this in the last couple of weeks about the surprising willingness, willingness on the part of, of Americans in particular to let people utilize their cell phone to track location, to help track COVID-19. And um, I don't think in general, like I, I'm, I'm still in the middle about this, right? Like I, I do value my privacy. I utilize privacy. Uh, minded practices. Um, I use VPNs in public locations. I oftentimes will use an incognito window or DuckDuckGo, which is a uh, privacy-based search engine that doesn't track. Uh, when I want to do a search that's even the least bit sensitive for whatever reason, medical issues, for example, um, as I've talked about in the past in the podcast. But um, I, I've read a number of articles now that talk about how we really have a lot less privacy than we did before September 11th, 2001, 
right? Like there's a remarkable difference in what we've received back privacy wise compared to what was taken away from us uh, post September 11th. And in a lot of ways, COVID, you know, 19 years later is uh, it, it could be an opportunity for setting up uh, uh, new ways to mitigate our privacy, or it could be an opportunity for us to have the right conversations about how do we utilize the extraordinary technologies available to us to do like anonymous contact tracking without, uh, you know, private, you know, really, really violating or giving up important privacy tenants. And we've talked about privacy both in the abstract and as a practical means, because we think you should be talking with your students about this, right? No matter what you teach, you should absolutely take an opportunity to think about how privacy works and what it means, especially in context of your content area. There's really not a content area where privacy couldn't become an interesting discussion to have with kids. But keep an eye on this topic, especially if you're interested in personal privacy. Yep, absolutely. There was an article I didn't put in, but it just I think Apple just dropped in their latest update something that will in iOS assist in in tracking. So am I correct in understanding that most countries that have a reasonable handle on the spread of COVID-19 and coronavirus have not only implemented widespread COVID-19 testing availability, but they also are implementing contact uh, tracing and tracking and and technology plays a big role in that. Is that accurate from your perception? Uh, I think I've heard that about it. I, I'm not sure if it's universal amongst countries that have tracked that, that have uh, largely dealt with the spread of COVID, but it would not surprise me based on other articles that I've read. I think you might be correct. Okay. I'll pick up this one. I think that you put in there. This is CNN from May 6th, how your passwords can end up for sale on the dark web. Uh, I just did a, a training last night. Actually, our, our church adopted a new information system. <clears throat> and so yeah, uh, just like it is for school, you know, new information systems are, are powerful, but they give, um, you know, potentially a lot of people greater access to information. And it's important to, um, you know, not only protect your password, um, also to, you know, make some decisions about how you want that information shared. On the subject of passwords, I would encourage everybody to use a unique and long password that's not used anywhere else because with hacks and these compromises, um, if you've been using the same password for a while, it's almost guaranteed at this point. It's like if you've been using it for years, <clears throat> that that password is out in the wild. And so this uh, unhackable series um, from CNN Business talks about how, you know, the Zoom hacks are, you know, an example of just companies that are getting their data compromised. And so the password problem means that basically anybody who's been using a password for for, for years um, because of the number of hacks probably has um, their password out there. And so they uh, talk about different dark web scans that you can have. Uh, there's a link to an Experian site. Um, I've talked to the, or we've talked about the website, Have I Been Pwned, that a Microsoft white hat um, researcher, you know, keeps pop populated. So I hadn't seen this Experian one. I'll, I'll drop this into the, the show notes. Uh, is your information on the dark web? Find out with a free dark web triple scan. Um, and of course, Experian wants to sign you up for some additional services, I'm sure. And that's part of how they're, they're getting your email address, but uh, a good reminder. Um, and so Jason is, I don't think I know anyone else who has more thoroughly cleansed and, um, you know, properly hygiene 
treated his passwords in the way that, that, that Jason has. So I would add to your recommendations about, you know, thinking for how next year we're going to, what would you do differently? And uh, how would you, how are you going to um, continue to adapt to this hybrid and remote learning situation? Uh, one of the most important ways we can be doing that is, is by, you know, taking a little bit of time each week, let's say, maybe not every day, to just go into your passwords and get those changed. And tools like Google's password manager or yeah, the um, uh, and then Watchtower, these other things for LastPass and 1Password, they will help you identify these are the, the, the websites you have a repeated password. These are the websites that are that you've uh, put in a compromised password, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And, um, and and I still run into passwords, I don't know, once or twice a month that I have an old password that I end up changing. But, yeah, I um, and, and mostly because it doesn't really matter how long it is after 16 characters. I'm not going to memorize that password anyways. But now I'm doing 50 character passwords just because it's funny. I mean, that's like, you know, but why not when I use a password manager? But a password manager is critical. Um, I would add one other recommendation. Um, I like Credit Karma which is a service that allows you to monitor your credit without having to mess with any of the credit monitoring services. And it gives me a credit score and talks about uh, troubling things about credit. They also have a password uh, monitor as well. And so they know my email address. And so if they find my email address in a sketchy location, they send me a notification over my phone. So that's pretty great too. Nice. Uh, speak Speaking of tools, um, one other that I think actually I've been trying to pitch for a while now, but uh, Firefox has announced that they are going to offer a pay-for VPN service um, that is an app that you can utilize on your phone, and I think it also works on, on desktop computers as well. We've talked about how important VPNs are here. Are, are here are <laughs> We've talked about how important VPNs are here on the podcast in the past, but it, it, it's a little less of an issue now because, you know, you're probably not sitting in a coffee shop very often or in public Wi-Fi. Once you get back out there, once things get back a little more to normal again, you should never be on public Wi-Fi without utilizing a VPN. But the problem with that is, is that free VPNs are garbage and probably more harm than if you didn't use a VPN at all on public internet. So um, the uh, Firefox VPN is currently in in beta. You can download the app. You have to rec you have to request a username and password. I have one, and have been playing with it on my Android phone. But the reason why I mention it is because it's $4.99 a month. That's actually a pretty competitive price. 60 bucks a year is a good price for a, a, a well done VPN. But if I were to trust a non if I were to trust an organization with VPN, it would be the nonprofit that backs Firefox. The Mozilla Foundation is really privacy militant, and I would guess that they would have as much interest as just about anyone else as a nonprofit privacy-based organization to protect your privacy. So if you're looking for a VPN and you're not already paying for one of the better ones, I would say this is a, a no-brainer if you're looking for a new one. Man, and Credit Karma is amazing. I actually had an account on there. I, I was just logging in as you're talking about this. Uh, wow, it it has not only my credit card and home loan, but all of our student loan debt, you know, collected. And it's a great dashboard. Um, so, yeah, fantastic recommendation there. It's a little scared. I think I'm going to go have to log, log out and pass out um, because <laughs> 
student loans are a little shocking. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, I don't I don't like looking at my mortgage for that very amount. It's like really that's not a hundred thousand dollars lower. Um, one more quick privacy one, and then we'll move on to maybe happier topics. Uh, this is an article from Business Insider. And employees at home, says the headline, are being photographed every five minutes by an always-on video service to ensure they're actually working. And the service has seen a rapid expansion since the coronavirus outbreak. And um, it's interesting because um, uh, the uh, I hear a lot of conversations, and, and I'm I'm not new to working at home. So I did work at home during a large part of 2010 to 2015. I honestly don't think there was ever a question whether I was working at home because I had a job that was at least eight hours a day for most of that time. It still is more than eight hours a day for most of that time. And so our boss had to trust me um, to to know that this really had to be an outputs based system. It wasn't an eight to five job uh, it, during those times. I wish it was an eight to five job because it was much more than that. And I was always kind of working. My job has turned more reasonable since then, but something that it, it's really going to challenge the work at home ethos, right? And last week we reported that Twitter has basically told employees that they can just stay at home in perpetuity, right? Um, there's been a lot of coverage on that in the last week, including that Twitter may actually change the nature of work with this decision. Um, I know that Google has said that employees can and probably will stay home until the end of the year. I know Microsoft has been working under that working assumption, but I don't know the answer to this because I struggle this a little bit, too, with people that I work with. But at some point, like the convenience of working together or being in a classroom together is your physical eyes can provide you an extraordinary amount of accountability. But the bottom line is is when people are in their own homes, they may slack off. Right. And I think the temptation is to think about um a a kind of a surveillance state style solution to that. And I'm not saying there isn't a value there, but I think we're going to have a lot of interesting conversations about work, about trust, about coworkers, right? And what they will get done. Um I don't remember the name of the book, but one of the folks that uh um is a popular community person for WordPress wrote a book. This was seven, eight years ago about working at home. And one of the things he said that has really stuck with me is that um if you want to trust the people you work with, then you should hire people that you trust as opposed to assume that you can retrofit a trust system on people you don't know or you don't already trust. And that stuck with me a lot because there's a lot of truth to that. Now we, you know, we're not always in the luxury of, of having people around us that we know well enough that we can trust them in this process. But I think this notion of work and not work and work hours, all very challenged by the work at home structure. Was that by chance the year without pants, WordPress.com and the future of work? I believe it was. That's correct. Yeah. Matt, Matt yeah. Wallywag, right? Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. Well, no, Scott. Birkin, I think. Okay, yeah, that. But Wally, but it, really, founder or one of the founders. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. There's, so yeah, something to think about. Good stuff. All right. Well, um, 
uh, my last thought on that, and then we can go to a different topic. We've got to be talking about surveillance. I, my my uh, second TEDx talk that I did, uh, which hopefully, if we can do this, I'll have a, I'll be doing a third one in September up at the University of Central Oklahoma on technology fear therapy. <clears throat> but my second one was called Digital Citizenship in the Surveillance State. And I absolutely think that we need to find ways to talk about these issues, to talk about privacy, to talk about surveillance, and a big shout out to the PBS Frontline uh, special on surveillance and China. It is, it's just mind blowing. And the, here's the thing. I, being with Jason on Wednesday nights and, and reading articles helps me connect dots. And all of us need ways to connect dots because we hear different headlines and different articles. When you see a special like the PBS Frontline, you know, we should not aspire to live in a surveillance state like China. And the level of oppression that they have today in the far western province uh, where the where the Uyghur Muslim minority live uh, well, actually, I say minority in the in the nation of China. They're a minority in in their province. They're a majority, although China has been moving, uh, you know, Han Chinese in to to try and change that that equation. Um, it's just it's so important that we talk about these issues because we are living in times of tumultuous change, exponential change, and the tools of surveillance are just going to continue to increase more and more. And we need to help educate people of all stripes and situations about these issues so that we can be informed citizens and we can also have informed elected officials that are not simply going to, you know, blindly say yes to whatever, you know, people who are going to promote an agenda of of state security and, you know, security at all costs, because there there is a cost when we don't stand up for civil liberties and individual freedoms and, and rights. And we've, we've fought a long time, not in the history of the world, you know, speaking, because we have a very young country, but in the short history of our, you know, 200 plus year old nation, we've, we've fought for these civil liberties and we need to continue to do that as well. So we started a little bit late, so maybe we can go a little bit after the, the top of the hour. Uh, what if we pick up a couple media literacy and conspiracy theory <clears throat> resources? I mentioned That's on the correct. show, Two weeks ago, this, quote, documentary called Plandemic, and I wrote a post about how this was a case study, a teachable moment for talking about the way that disinformation is spread. And so I found some really good resources this last week that I want to commend to people. The first one is a video by John Cook called Plandemic and the Seven Traits of Conspiratorial Thinking. And I'm actually wondering how next year, um, as I refine my sixth grade curriculum and go beyond advertising and, and using pictures to manipulate thinking and, and to influence both thinking and behavior, which is kind of where we've been this year, <clears throat> taking it to another level, thinking about uh, conspiracy theory, there might, there, one of the questions is like, what's developmentally appropriate for middle school kids? When do we talk about conspiracy theory? Let me tell you, our kids, if they're on YouTube, are right in the middle of all kinds of conspiracy theories about all kinds of, of topics. And so uh, that video is pretty good. And he's arguing that inoculation for disinformation comes from unmasking the techniques that are used. And so he uses examples from this uh, pandemic video. Uh, very well done. And then he's actually written a free book bought with uh, Stephen Lewandowski, if I can say his name right. So this is Stephen Lewandowski and John Cook. John Cook has done a lot. I think he is, uh, 
I think he's a UK based academic, maybe Australia. So I may be getting that wrong. He has an accent. Uh, do I need to know my accents better? Yes, I do. The name of their book is called The Conspiracy Theory Handbook. And John Cook has done a lot about climate change and why is it that it's so tough to, you know, shake certain people's perceptions about climate change and they want to, you know, believe there's a, a global conspiracy and this is horrible. Of course, we have a state senator, Jim Inhofe, uh, who I've met personally and been, as, been in his office in Washington, D.C., who's one of the, the leading U.S. senators, you know, who thinks the whole idea of climate change is, uh, is a vast conspiracy. Um, but that's a free book. And then uh, two more articles. There's a ProPublica article called Immune to Evidence, How Dangerous Coronavirus Conspiracies Spread. And by the way, brace yourself, because in the next 12 to 18 months, as we await, hopefully, the arrival of a vaccine, we're going to continue to see a ton of disinformation, what some people will call information pollution, uh, information that's specifically designed to uh, to mislead and maybe even harm, which could be ma called malinformation, also disinformation, misinformation. Um, and so the AP, the AP News had an article on May 15th, and sadly, we probably need to get these, you know, about weekly, not real news. A look at what didn't happen this week, because... This is huge. We are just going to continue to see more and more articles like this. We've got to equip not only our students, but ourselves with with tools to uh, be able to discern what are trusted and reliable sources. And when I get some information, how do I discern uh, and measure and 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 and, uh, you know, basically assess? Can I believe this source? And what do I do with this information before I just click, you know, share immediately? Share, share, share. So any thoughts there about pandemic or any of those uh, media literacy and, and and basically, I guess, conspiracy education resources to try to help uh, educate do you? Do you have anyone in your life, Jason, that loves conspiracies? Um, well, I, I think of the same way we do from the standpoint of the sport of them, right? But I will say that I've been privy to a couple conversations in the last two weeks since, and I, I hadn't heard of pandemic until you introduced it to me, Wes, and then the next 24 hours I was proceeded to be bombarded about uh, with it in both the media and then also some folks that I am close to and maybe not so close to on social media. But I have been part of a couple of conversations where you know, I immediately looked up the background. I looked up the, the, the doctor that was a question, dismissed it as fake, right? That it was, uh, or, you know, something that was not worth my time. And I like things that disagree with me. I enjoy reading things that disagree with me because that helps me either solidify my beliefs or change them if it's new data for me to reconsider my point of view. But the bottom line is that there was nothing credible about the, the, the pandemic point of view or the way that they they create a kind of a posture there for their argument. So I just missed it right away. But a couple of people who I know to be smart, uh, uh, eloquent speakers and thinkers, one of them even in the medical profession, um, was treating it as a source, not necessarily straight up believable, but as part of their kind of wide point of view. It's another voice in their point of view. And I think that that's that it just says how difficult it is in 2020 when anything can look look like a legitimate source because there is zero barrier to publish, there's zero, zero barrier to broadcast, there's zero barrier to connect with a world of others. And again, it's so complex because I know that both Wes and I are advocates for giving students voice in this way. We know how important that authentic voice and authentic audience is, but the same technology that gives sixth graders in a classroom the opportunity to publish a, pro a podcast to the world also gives conspiracy theorists that purport to be experts 
uh, that same opportunity. So it's an interesting time we live in. I don't think we have a good answer to this yet, but man, we're still trying. Absolutely. All right. Well, we've got time for a few more. Uh, do you want to, how about, would you like Microsoft or Google for 500? Um, let me mention the Microsoft one because it, uh, the Verge reported yesterday, it's Microsoft Build, which is their big uh, developer conference every year. It, it, it did happen remotely. And in fact, I follow some uh, Microsoft employees on, on various social medias that are uh, kind of uh, media celebrities that are now Microsoft people. And so I got to watch them kind of engage and build as it was remote. Super cool. I think Microsoft did a, a very admirable job to be part of that. But um, uh, one of the things announced to build, and I'm still wrapping my brain around this because the screenshots I've seen don't give me enough perspective, but The Verge called it, um, Microsoft has something called Fluid Office Document is, they say it's Microsoft, or I'm sorry, Google Docs on steroids. And uh, uh, Office.com will get Fluid, uh, fluid Design, Fluid Office Document. And they're also going to open source the technology, which five years ago would have been a massive headline. But now Microsoft is super like free love, open source uh, all the time on things. But it's some kind of format that allows you to I, the only way I, I could think about it was that if you if you're a WordPress person, the new way that they do uh, uh, content in WordPress, and I don't even know what they call it. It's in like different chunks that you can move around in boxes. I could never figure it out, so I went back to the old style. But it's a very dynamic document that can allow you to put a lot of different stuff inside of a document uh, They're, and embed it in a way that's interactive. It's different blocks, and you see the same thing on the new Google Sites, which I yeah. am heavily invested in. Um, but it makes your it makes your web pages um, much more flexible across platforms from mobile to laptop to desktop to television and, and whatever. So yeah, that, that kind of design, which I'm not going to, you know, get to say the exact right word um, basically just has you break all of your content into a block. So right. if you go back to traditional, it's, it's kind of treated all as one big, you know, mat, you know, mash of, of code, but right. this separate blocks. And so those can, can flow and, be side to side or, or on top of each other. And right. so, so this is, but this isn't, this isn't regular, the subscription office 365. This is a different uh, office technology that they're. Well, I, I think that they are going to open source the technology behind it, but I, it's not that the software itself is open source. I think it's some of the, the code and design components are open source, but the point here that I think is super interesting is that they're comparing to Google Docs. And to be honest, I much prefer Google Docs and Sheets and, and Slides to their Microsoft counterparts online, in part because the simplicity of them. But if they're really using this or perceiving this as a design language for collaborative sharing of documents, I, I'm interested in that. And it's also interesting to see Microsoft attempt to innovate in this space because I feel like if anything, they've been trying to catch up with Google in that Google was the first to really, I think, nail a collaborative environment. Google Docs was years ahead of, of Microsoft in regards to the ability to collaborate and figure out ways to work together in the same doc. In fact, I was commenting to my coworker, Mike, the other day, we were trying to uh, edit a word 
a WordPress page together and we had to actually screen share and have only one of us edit because you can't do that in WordPress. WordPress doesn't have the ability to have two people edit at the same time. And like, we were just so frustrated because we both want to work on the document at the same time. And as it turns out, you can't do that, right? Like that's, that's a Google Docs thing. And, you know, we've been pampered by this extraordinary technology that I feel like Microsoft was kind of late to the party, but this may evolve it and good on Microsoft. They're trying to innovate in this space. But right now I read this and look at this and my brain isn't quite catching it yet. Yeah. Well, we need to see it and experience it. And, you know, I'll say this. I, I think there's still a number of teachers who have yet to fully experience the incredible power and benefit of a collaboratively edited document, you know, being able to uh, work together and collaborate there. There's a lot more of that, I think, now happening at our school. We've been a Google Google app school for over 10 years. Um, but, you know, in in a lot of uh, assignments and assessments and things like that, we still tend to focus a lot more on, you know, individual work. And it's great to see yeah. the collaborative document technologies continuing to advance. So that that uh, that caught my eye as well. Um, all right. Uh, in, we are at the top of the hour. Uh, we might mention uh, this is just kind of a gripe. This is Ars Technica, May 19th. I put it under security. Your Equifax settlement. $125 isn't coming, but banks get their $5.5 million. So we've uh, talked a lot on the show about different hacks. We certainly discussed the Equifax hack. And so, yes, 147 Americans were promised to get some money uh, after Equifax, you know, made a pinky promise, as the article says, to go forth and sin no more. But uh, the banks are the ones now that are just going to get paid because it was very inconvenient to reissue debit and credit cards. So yeah. sorry if you were thinking you were going to get some money, you're not. But change your passwords anyway. Yeah, and I, I will say I was pretty crisp when I saw that article come across today too. Okay, anything else we can do before Geeks of the Week? Um, I am good. I think we've we've said it all. All right, very good. Well, what do you have for us this week, sir? Well, uh, as I've been sharing the last several weeks, I've been looking for geeky projects to take up my time on the weekends uh, as I am not able to leave my house. And one of the geeky projects, I've been watching a lot of YouTube lately because it entertains me, and I've also been doing a lot of baking, so I've been watching a lot of baking videos on YouTube. And I stumbled onto a, a interesting project that there are, there's literally 200 videos about, but I was so tempted by one of them that I decided to actually buy hardware this week to do it. And so... Uh, this means taking an old iPod classic. This is the first, second, third, fourth, or fifth generation. I picked a fifth generation for a reason I'll tell you in a moment. Um, buying a either non-working one or an old one and refurbishing it with a compact flash to SSD card adapter. And it basically takes the old iPod. Uh, you can buy batteries for them. Um, you can buy um, a new screens for them. You can buy clear covers to make kind of a funky looking can see inside the iPod thing. But I bought a fifth generation iPod Classic for $30 this week that is got a tiny hard drive in it, 30 gigs only. Big deal 15 years ago, much less impressive now. But the reason why the fifth generation is the one that all the nerds love is because it has a built-in uh, digi digital audio converter that is a high-end one. So what I'm going to do is, based on these videos, I'm going to pull it apart. I'm going to get a compact flash adapter and take a 256 gigabyte 
SD card and make that into the hard drive, replace the battery, and then it becomes a 250 gig. You can do these up to a terabyte, by the way. Um, a 250 gigabyte iPod classic that has a, a high-end digital audio converter in it. And all in, I'll probably be under $100. And, you know, I have the world at my fingertips with Spotify, so obviously I don't need to do this. I'm doing it because it entertains me, and it does give me a crack in the door of the notion of fixing otherwise not user-serviceable uh, parts on cell phones, which is only a a minor benefit to me, but why not? And sometimes you follow in the footsteps of Lewis and Clark to a deep canyon in Montana where I think there's not connectivity. So why not take 250 gigs of music on said Lewis and Clark adventure? That's yeah. how I'm reading it. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, the other thing too is that I do, I'm not very good at it yet, but I do like to turn my cell phone off occasionally and I love music. In fact, I was a, a, an early iPod user in part because I, I love music. I listen to it uh, 15 hours a day in, in different uh, ways, shapes, or forms. But it's an interesting project. I saw a lot of YouTube videos on it. It's super interesting. I did also finally get a sourdough starter going. After my third try, my sourdough starter is alive and super active. But now that I've done that, it's iPod time. Okay, can you share that? Because our librarian and I would both like to bake sourdough. She has tried and failed her in her initial attempt. So any um, resources about how you got that going? Um, yeah. Can you actually mail part of your starter to us? And could oh. we be going off of that? Yeah. Let me do this. Let me make sure that it bakes bread. Um, I'm yeah. in day yeah. 11 right now. The first two were the first two were failures. The first one, okay. I, the first one I think was actually active, but I didn't really understand what that meant. And then the second one actually got mold in it. So that was a non-starter for me. And, and again, I'm also immunosuppressed, as I mentioned. So I got to be careful about food safety, but sure. my third, my third one, and I, the, I'm watching some videos on YouTube called Baker Betty. I've watched Baker Betty's starter YouTube videos and I'm on day 12 now. And today I actually split it into two starters um, uh, because I was curious and both of them, you know, is like a third of a, of a, a container uh, and it, it rose up to three times its size. So I know it's active. And so this weekend I'm actually going to take an extra day off and take a four day weekend because I deserve it. And um I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bake bread with that this weekend. So I'll know for sure if my starter's active. But all the indicators in the world was the third time was the charm for starter all a knife. There you go, folks. You never know what you're going to get in the Geek of the Week and sourdough starters. There you, you know, why not? Why, if, you're, if you're sheltering at home, why not make some, some fresh sourdough bread? Uh, okay, quickly, I've got two. Um, thrilled by this, you know, Geeks of the Week, by the way, continue to change my life for the better. So I used PDF Candy that you had mentioned several weeks ago today to take 63, I think, slides that were made by our fourth grade teachers, needed to make a slideshow, tossed that, downloaded PDF into PDF Candy. Boom, here's a zip archive of all these images. Fantastic. Um, as a result of Slide Carnival, which you also shared, sir, several months ago, um, I discovered this last night. Unsplash, unsplash.com, one of my favorite places to get free, high-quality images, use it all the time for my info picks, use it with my students. Uh, it's, it's really awesome. It has a free plugin 
which has been around, I think, since 2017 for Google Slides. And so you can get that on the G Suite Marketplace, either install that for yourself or if you happen to have access to it, install for the domain, you can make that available for everybody in your organization. And then the last thing, I've mentioned this before, but this is the New York Times article, <clears throat> or article. it's a New York Times podcast called Rabbit Hole. I would like to have, I would like to do a whole parent university on this because the radicalization potential now of YouTube is not a small thing. And they are working to address this, but this is an absolutely fascinating deep dive into that, <clears throat> that algorithm, stories of people who have been radicalized, stories of the developers who have, you know, used their, their coding technology skills to help people become more addicted to YouTube and then to go down these rabbit holes, hence the name rabbit hole, a fantastic podcast. So I think it's time to wrap up. Dr. Neifer, where can people find you when you are not sharing wonderful geeks of the week and other bits of wisdom about EdTech news here on the EdTech Situation Room? Uh, best place to find me is Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. Um, I try to share a lot of articles as I am reading in the connect with excellent uh, professionals like Dr. Fryer. I also blog for the NCCE uh, Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncce.org. Awesome. I am W. Fryer on Twitter. My blog is speedofcreativity.org. And you can find more links about me um, by going to my website, westfriar.com. So we are happy that you are here and we would love for you to share us. If you have an opportunity to write a review, give us a thumbs up wherever you listen to your podcast. Make sure that you visit our website, edtechsr.com. Uh, slash links where you can find the show notes for every week's episode. And if you are not finding us on EdTechSR or you're not finding us on YouTube where you can subscribe to us, where are you finding us? Uh, because that's the website that you can get not only the links that we talk about, but the ones that we don't have time to address. So until next time, when we're not sure what part of planet Earth Dr. Knife will be from, but it is surely going to be a more interesting background than my office. Uh, we want to wish you a good day and encourage you to stay savvy and stay safe. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Good night.